Let's do a quick sound check question here. Can you tell us about the best thing you've ever eaten? Wow, the best thing I've ever eaten. That's such a hard challenge. But you know, there's nothing really like a satisfying meal after a long journey. And when I landed in Kenya after almost 24 hours on a plane flight, being able to go to a local restaurant, like a little, small, nestled away, almost safari-like place and eat some local meats. Like I had some some zebra and I had like some ostrich things that were pretty hard to find. That was like, I'm in this place. I'm very hungry. I'm trying out something new. I've never had anything like this before. Wow, this is really impressive. So I don't know about best meal, but it's most memorable to me because I was so hungry and it was so different. It was everything I wanted upon landing in the country. Wow, that's really cool. Did they give you any sauces with the with the meat or they just were like, here? There were some sauces. Yeah, I don't remember their names. There's like a, a red sauce and a green sauce. I can't be more descriptive than that. But they were both delicious of that, I assure you, and very unique. Haven't really had anything like that. If you haven't had ostrich, I'm sorry to all the vegetarians out there, but if you haven't had ostrich, it was delicious. It was really, really good. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. With fast shipping, the best card sleeves, deck boxes, binders, and all the modern, legacy, and commander staples you could ever want, Card Kingdom is there with the hookup. If you'd like to support the show, just use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com KTM. Order your Guilds of Ravnica singles and sealed product now. You know you want that sweet Assassin's Trophy action. Great removal is, well, great. Thank you for supporting the show when you shop at cardkingdom.com KTM. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. Tune into their stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for daily legacy action. I had the honor of being invited to Paragon City Games to film a vlog about their Heroes League Invitational Qualifier series. The players there love competitive magic. The store is super clean, open, friendly, and a great place to play magic. Their staff is super friendly and they have an amazing streaming setup to broadcast live feature matches. Talking about it doesn't do it justice, you'll have to go see the vlogs I made to know what I'm talking about. Just go to facebook.com slash paragoncitygames and click on videos. I made one each on standard, modern, and legacy. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. Let's welcome the senior Magic designer for Wizards of the Coast, Gavin Verhe, to the show. Gavin has been making magic for over seven years and is the one to carry the creative torch into the future. Gavin has a background in creative writing and he loves to bring new ideas to the magic multiverse. He's worked on so many modern era magic sets and loves to experiment with new mechanics in the game with commander and multiplayer centric sets such as Conspiracy and Battle Bond. Gavin's passion for magic is only enhanced by his open-mindedness. He loves to travel and see the world. Gavin has a great attitude about life and loves to discover new things. It's such an inspiring message that I'm eager to share in this interview. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gavin Verhe. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. And today I'm here with the one and the only Gavin Verhey. Gavin, how's it going? It's going great, Sam. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to be a guest. And I love what you do with the show. I love that you bring on people and kind of talk about them, not only about magic, but about everything involving themselves. So you'll get to learn today a bit about me and a little about magic. Should be fun. Yes, it is going to be super fun. I am very excited because you are a very special person within Magic, not just about your design role within Wizards of the Coast, but also your love of food and travel and also how you engage with the Magic the Gathering community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as much as I love the game, the community is everything to me. I mean, if I had to pick between never playing Magic again and never talking to any of my favorite Magic players again, I would definitely choose the people. Like, I love being able to talk with people about the game, travel around, meet people in different countries who play Magic. Hopefully, I never have to choose between those things. But I love the people so very much in Magic. I'm so excited to dive into all of it. But like all things, we start at the beginning. Gavin, where did you grow up and how did you find Magic? 
So I grew up in a little town called Edmonds, Washington. It's right on the kind of coast. There's like a ferry and there's a beach. And I actually grew up in a really nice place. I was able to walk down to the beach. It was pretty nice. Me and my brother lived there. We grew up together and we did everything together. We played games together. We were actually both homeschooled growing up. Not a lot of people know that. But so my mom taught us and we would hang out and we'd do our work together, our studies. And then we would play games in the evening. And of course, that started with video games and some light board games and sports. When I was about 10, in actually January 2001, I picked up magic, and things were never the same after that, in a good way. You know, we started both started playing. I got a starter deck from a local Wizards of the Coast store, and I came home, learned the rules, taught my brother how to play, and then every other game just faded away. That's all we did. It was right at the cusp of summer. It was all we did all summer long, just playing magic, getting new cards, deck building. And, you know, admittedly, my parents were a little... I don't know about dubious, but a little wary at first, right? Because it was a lot of a lot of something new. There were cards coming into the house. We were always asking for new cards. Although eventually they learned they could incentivize us to do chores with booster packs. So that was a nice step. But we just kept playing. And then when I was 11, a year later, I decided I wanted to come work for Wizards. And now I'm here. Wow. That early on, you knew you wanted to be a, a magic maker. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's actually kind of a fun story. So when I was 11, I was in Edmonds is a suburb of Seattle. So I grew up in the Seattle area. And one of the perks of living here is, of course, a lot of Wizards of the Coast employees live in the area. So I went to a pre-release for Odyssey and Randy Bueller was there. Randy at the time was um, the, the VP of Magic R&D. He was the big shot. I, I knew who he was. I read the articles online and I went up to him actually. And at 11 years old, I said, hey, Randy, what's it going to take to get a job at Wizards? I'm ready. Like I want to come join and he tells me, all right, kid, you're going to need two things. And the first thing you're going to need is a college degree. And my heart just sinks, right? It's like, that's going to be, I'm 11. It's going to take forever. That's six, seven, eight, nine years away. That's going to be forever. But the second thing he says is you need to be like a pro player or someone who, that we recognize from writing or something similar. So we know that you're good at talking about magic, thinking about magic and a strong player because we like people who are good at magic. And of course I thought, well, I don't know about this whole college degree thing, but a pro player, how hard could that be? So from that moment forward, I dedicated myself to being good at magic, writing about magic, talking about magic. When I was 15, I qualified for my first pro tour. When I was 16, I actually started college. I started college two years early with the goal of partially graduating early so I'd come work at magic. And then I got a creative writing degree. I went pro at magic, got a writing gig at starcitygames.com and a number, number of other places. And then in 2011, about 10 years after I asked Randy, I got the call to come and work for Wizards. And I've been here for about seven years now, and I love every day of it. <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. Wow, Randy, if you're listening, thank you so much. I mean, what a gift to be able to uh, talk to such a young fan at an early age, give them such a positive and welcoming uh, advice about, yes, if you want to do this and this is your dream, you could actually do it. And here's how you do it. And I love, Gavin, that you just like dove head first into this and you just you double down on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm always the kind of person who dedicates himself to something, puts their mind to it and goes for it. For example, I only applied to one college, the University of Washington. It's where I wanted to go. I got in, right? I'm very like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it well. I'm going to focus on it. And not only was Randy's advice great advice for me, but now I'm in his same position or a similar position. And I get people asking me all the time the very same question. And I often give them the very same answer, which is really fun. It's kind of come full circle. And now, of course, I occasionally get to work with Randy on projects too, which is a, a really weird thing. Like getting to work with people like Randy Bueller, Richard Garfield, Mark Rosewater, like these names of the game. And it's really delightful. That is so so funny. At least you're not like trolling people. It's like, well, you first got to start off being 11. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you started too late. It's impossible. The good news is now, I mean, there's so many routes into Wizards and into R&D. And what I always tell people is if you want to work on designing magic cards, get a job anywhere inside of Wizards because you're always welcome to come down and play test with us. We send a lot of surveys out to the entire company on things like rares and design holes you can submit ideas for. So really, just by being at Wizards, you have a chance to touch magic. So get your foot in the door and then see where it goes from there. And many people in Magic R&D have come from places like Game Support. Allison Medwin, Matt Tabak, numerous others have come in through other parts of the company. So really, if you want to work on Magic, don't delay. Apply for jobs. It's an awesome place to work. It's an amazing feeling to sit across from you right now, Gavin.
and, and, and listen to the story you just told, because what really resonates to me is that magic has become much more of a community game. Granted, Richard Garfield created the game, and, and Mark Rosewater and Aaron Forsyth and Randy Bueller, they helped design the game and make the game for many of its years. But today, it's become so widespread that now so many other people have a chance at, like you said, touching part of the game and making the game. Yeah, I mean, R&D is bigger than ever right now. And part of that is because we're making so many different kinds of products for so many different people. It wasn't that long ago. If you look back at, say, Lorwyn era, there was a year where we released three things. And they were the three main sets for that year. And then the introductory products like intro packs that went along with them. And now in any given year, we'll have master sets and ancillary products like Battle Bond or Unstable. And we've got deck builders toolkits and Planeswalker decks and all of our mainline sets. And who knows what other crazy things we have brewing on the horizon. So it takes more people than ever. And also importantly, it takes more different minds than ever. It's not about just strong competitive players coming in and making a game for the tournament scene. There's still plenty of that. We've got a whole team dedicated to it and play design is excellent. But there's a lot of casual and social play that goes on to make products like commander sets, for example, because what makes a commander set fun is a bit of a different skill set than what makes something like a fall release fun, like a Guilds of Ravnica. There's a lot of important pieces to both that translate, but, you know, commander is a very different format than tuning your decks for the pro tour and making sure that the right designers are working on the right products is very important. I've said this before on the podcast that recently I experienced when I went to uh, GP Vegas, that when you look around this huge room, everyone is enjoying magic in a different way. And if you sit down and talk to these magic players, like, hey, what are you playing? They're going to tell you all about their deck and all about what their friends are playing. And so I realized, wait a second, there's Legacy, Modern, Standard, Commander, Popper, and then like people are drafting, people are chaos drafting, people are cubing, and people are also like cosplaying and altering and, and talking about lore. And I realized there's no way to know, for one person to know everything there is to know about magic. So what you said absolutely rings true for as a player looking at the community and also from Wizards of the Coast looking at the game and, and Magic the Gathering as a, as a larger thing, there's no way. So of course R&D has to expand and grow and there has to be designers and developers making games for different facets of the community. A question I get asked a lot by people is, what makes Magic such a great game? Really my answer is that Magic isn't one game. It's a hundred different games. As you just described, there's so many different ways to play or even simply engage. There are huge Magic fans out there who don't even play the game, who do things like cosplay or read up on the lore or make things, craft things. You've got all these different formats to play. You've got players who just want to queue, players who just want to try out the newest limited experience. You've got standard specialists. You've got people who play their own wild formats at home. And we try and design for all of those and having, yeah, that wide variety of designers means a lot. Recently, I've kind of likened magic in a sense to a television show where you have, let's say, 24 episodes in a season, but not every episode is written by the same person. Different episodes are written by different people. And they that person is always trying to tell the story of that show, but is adding a bit of themselves into it. And when I'm working on a set or Aaron Forthice is working on a set or Ethan Fleischer is working on a set or any of us, we are all trying to make the best magic set we can, given the parameters of the set. We also put a bit of ourselves in it. You know, one of my favorite things to do is kind of slide in Kamigawa cards. I'm a huge Kamigawa fan, so getting something like Eureka into Commander 2018, totally my jam. I'm also a fan of Popper, so finding places to put commons that are exciting is a really big deal to me. I remember when Ethan Fleischer was working on Commander 2016, I believe, he asked for there to be a bunch of new basic lands in the set, and he got them to be Kev Walker lands. I, I believe this was the one. And the reason why being is that there was a format called Artist Constructed, and the way this format works is you play all cards in your deck of the same artist, including basic lands. And Kev Walker had a very wide variety of magic cards that he had illustrated, but had never done basic lands before. So by getting those in there now, you could build new decks with that, right? So everyone has their own little formats and own little touches. And you, you might be listening to that story thinking, that's ridiculous. I've never heard of anyone ever playing Artist Constructed. But there is a small contingent of people that play it. And magic is about not only delighting the huge group, but the small little groups as well. In anything, when you feel like you're directly talking to someone with the art you create, when it feels like, wow, this person is really, really speaking to me, that goes a long way. And what we find with sets like Dominaria, which was a huge success, one of our most successful sets of all time, that set is full of things that are just tiny little nods for different kinds of players. There's commons for Popper. There's references for old school players. There's stuff for Legacy, Modern, Standard. The draft format is great. There's tons of legends for Commander. And we're just touching so many different axes. There's old artists coming back for your artist constructed decks even. The tiniest little things. And that set did so well for us because it appealed to so many different people. And we really want to make sure that we can do that with our sets. 
I really hear that magic today has such a holistic and broad view in design that it's also becoming an homage to the community. There's a lot of little Easter eggs, just like you said, those Kev Walker basic lands going into it. And whenever I think about magic as a as a living, breathing thing, it's always evolving. Every set with new rules changes. I find a lot of joy even looking back in history. And that I remember when I first started playing Commander, I picked up this card called Return to dust. And it was like this great, you know, uh, it's a four mana, you know, instant spell that if you use it during your main phase, kind of like a sorcery, you get to exile two artifacts or enchantments. And it was like, wow, this thing is so powerful. And then I realized that it was a callback to dust to dust. It was a very old card from, I think, Legends or Antiquity or something from back in the day that did exactly that. And just it, that blew my mind because, first of all, I never knew that Dust to Dust existed. I saw that, hey, Return to Dust fits this functional purpose and also kind of makes you think about the game kind of like a puzzle. It also got me thinking about like, wow, now when I talk to old school Magic players and they have a very close connection and a, a great love for those old, vin- you know, vintage 93, 94 formats. And they're like, they always play Dust to Dust. And I was like, hey, we have a connection now. We have something to talk about. Yeah, there's so many different spider webs you can draw in the community of, hey, I like this thing, you like this thing. We, we both love it from different eras and we have this natural affinity for it. The example I always like to use is you have three people sitting around a table and someone says, man, I love my goblins deck. And everyone else is like, yeah, I love my goblins deck too. But one player is talking about a commander deck that they have that's a goblin themed deck. Someone's talking about Onslaught era goblins back when they were playing standard 10, 15 years ago. And then someone is talking about their goblin deck that they've built right now from the newest standard format. And all three of them are extremely nostalgic and excited about this Goblins deck and the idea of a Goblins deck without even talking about the same exact thing. And when you're talking about Return to Dust and Dust to Dust, you got excited about this Return to Dust, you have this connection with these people, and they're not playing Return to Dust in their old school format. It's not a legal card, but you got the reference and that's really fun. And Dominaria, to go back to that, was chock full of those kind of things. We call it lenticular design, where when a new player sees it, they just see a really cool card that doesn't require extra context. But if the experienced player sees it, or if the new player digs a little bit deeper into it, they can find the cool history. So when you see cards like like Lyra Dawnbringer. It's just a sweet angel, but then you learn, oh, it's related to Rhea Dawnbringer, and that's really cool. When you see the Black Blade Reforged, you see, wow, that's just a sweet sword that gives my creature a bunch of bonuses. But to the experienced player, or if you dig deeper, you see that it is this excellent sword that Dakon Blackblades used to kill off Nicol Bolas originally. So it's that kind of lenticular nature that we've been nailing in the past few sets. And frankly, I'm excited to explore more going forward. Many seasons ago, well, not really many seasons ago, but at the end of season one, I interviewed Mark Rosewater. And he said, I cannot tell you very much about what's going on. But in the future sets, you're going to go wow and wow and wow and wow. And, I, and that really, that quote really resonated with me. Now, Mark has been working on this stuff for like, what is like an eternity? I mean, he, I mean, the, the, the set design, the planning, the story, the art, everything takes a long time to develop. And so when I look back now, and, <laughs> you know, Amica has been released, Ixalan has been released, and uh, Our Devastation, and Dominaria, and, and like even M19, like a fl- the whole thing, the whole arc that we have seen, Magic players did go wow. We did. We went wow nonstop for the two and a half years since that interview. And I'm like, my mind is blown. And I'm sitting here with you. And I tried to get something out of Aaron Forsyth at GP Vegas. But he said, no, 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 I'm not going to get anything. And, and you also can't give me anything. But I see how far Magic R&D is pushing things these days. And recently, you really created this concept of partner EDH, partner commander with Battle Bond. Can you tell us a little bit about really how you came up with that? really groundbreaking and kind of just like completely different way of thinking about magic. So I've always felt as someone who's loved the magic community that the most fun way to play magic is with someone else. Now, of course, you're going to be playing with someone else across the table from you, but sitting right next to you by your side, like two on two or larger groups, Emperor, if you want to play older formats. And Two at a Giant was a natural fit for this. It was actually originally Sean Main's idea, who used to work here and has now gone on to do other things. Sean Main was working on what we call the summer supplemental set. So we had Conspiracy and Conspiracy 2, much in that vein. He was the lead designer of both of those. Excellent ideas, really added a lot of fun to magic. But we didn't just want to 
launch a Conspiracy 3, we wanted to do something a little bit different with this kind of fun innovation set. And he thought, what are other formats that are really popular? And we had just at the time done Oath of the Gatewatch, which was Two-Headed Giant. And that went over really well. And there were a lot of players asking, where's more Two-Headed Giant going to be? We always run it at pre-releases, but that's kind of the only place we run it. So we started thinking about it and thought, okay, what if we made an entire draft format around this? Drafting Two-Headed Giant is something that has almost never been done. It was done back when we started pushing it in Time Spiral Block all those years ago and Lorwyn Block, and there was a pro tour. But other than that, pretty much relegated to history books. So we started playtesting it and it was super fun because nothing is more satisfying than looking at a pack, taking two cards together, building your decks together, playing and high-fiving your teammate as you play. Like It's amazing. So with Battle Bond, we really leaned into that and not only made it a two-headed giant set, but a set where you drafted it together and with all kinds of combinations together and putting things in there like the partners, like assist, these mechanics that allow you to really do things next to each other and feel like you are a team. I love assist because... You look at the mana cost, it's like it costs six, but I'll pay three, you'll pay three, you slam it down, you high five each other, it's a blast. Or when you play your partner, first of all, when you open your partner with card in a booster pack, they always come together. So you just get this great feeling of, hey, we get to take these and put them into our decks. But you also get when you're playing, I'm going to put this down, you're going to go find yours, you're going to put it out. These two cards are going to synergize with each other. And it's this amazing, amazing feeling. And we spent a really long time on Battle Bond trying to get that feeling just right, making sure there was lots of things to help each other out. Or as you could play on your teammates' creatures, things that allowed you to target other players instead of just yourself. So you could draw additional cards or target your teammate to draw additional cards, that kind of thing. And eventually it was a huge hit. It was fantastic. And one of the things that I love about it is I'm a big commander player as well. I love playing casually as well as competitive. It's funny, I can't come from a competitive background, but now I have this kind of casual background too working here. So I can kind of touch both audiences. And I was able to include a lot of cards in the set that spoke to both groups. You know, you have things like the new legendary creatures, which are awesome for commander players and get people excited about just owning those individual cards. And then you have things like Brightling or Arena Rector that really grab people who are maybe on the more competitive end. And yeah, Brightling has seen some play all the way back in Legacy, True Name Nemesis, a really cool reprint for the set. And by including these aspects and getting people excited about the individual cards, it lent to a lot of people trying to hit a giant draft who normally wouldn't because they're like, hey, I need this True Name Nemesis for my Legacy deck. I guess I'll fire up a draft with my friend, see what I get. And at the end of the day, I'll just take some cards home. And then they play and have a blast. So it's kind of like come for the cards, stay for the experience. And I've seen that happen all over the place. And it was a huge success. Battle Bond was a massive, massive hit for us. And I couldn't be a more proud father of seeing that set come to fruition. There were these, like you said, mechanics like assists that I think in Magic players' heads always felt like it should work that way. (laughs) But then having a product that really leaned into all of these different uh, corners of what team play looks like was very, very satisfying. And uh, on top of it being very organic, it didn't feel forced. It was very organic and it felt very natural. It also felt very holistic. It always feels great when a Magic product and also a Magic format fills in like the little bit of gaps that the community like, hey, I really, I really wish this thing worked this way. It also feels very validating from the community standpoint to get that from Wizards. Yeah, and Assist does kind of a number of roles there. Not only is it fun, not only is it like it, magic should work this way, we can play our spells together, but it is also what we call a, um, a stealth teaching mechanic because if you're coming to Twitter Giant for the first time, as many people were, a lot of people had never played Twitter Giant before Battle Bond. And you see an Assist card, it says you and your teammates can both spend mana to help cast a spell together, which in turn tells you that you can't normally do that. So in the same way that Haste, for example, teaches you creatures can't always attack the turn they come into play, Trample teaches you damage doesn't always hit your opponents when you block with a creature. It's kind of backwards teaching, but it it still lets you learn in a way, and that's really important. The cards actually help instruct you here. So Assist serves a lot of important roles in the set, and I think it was not only a, a fun workhorse mechanic, but quietly one of the key things that made the entire set function. I love what you said right now, Gavin, about teaching, because Magic the Gathering, without a lot of people really understanding it, it's a big puzzle. You have to kind of figure it out. It's like an infinite engine of possibility, is what Dan Burdick kind of explained, the, the rules engine, the card pool, everything. And Oftentimes, people are like, oh, this card is bad. And it's just like, well, we can't make every card in the set amazing. Because if we do, then what is amazing? Then no card is amazing anymore. So we put a couple of cards that are perceived bad so you can learn about what makes it good in the set or within the puzzle that we've given you. And 
And I think that oftentimes, sometimes players forget about that. And that is also what I find almost most satisfying is when you're drafting and I'm like, oh my gosh, this creature is so bad and you lose with it. It almost feels like, well, now I know what's not bad. (laughs) Now I know what's good. Yeah, it's really important to have those learning moments where you can feel like you're leveling up as a player. I mean, a classic example is when people start playing Magic, we did a lot of research and we gave new players Magic decks, sample decks, had them starting playing. They played a few games, learned how the game worked, and then we gave them some booster packs. And we're like, hey, open these up, add cards from them into your decks. And almost invariably, they would just make their decks worse. They would go above the minimum number of cards. They would take out good cards for weaker cards. They would start adding colors without the mana support for it. And so what we kind of learned is that if we put a couple cards in these newer products that even brand new players can recognize are not very strong, like you just compare the numbers across and wow, this looks weaker than another card or man, this card really doesn't seem like it does very much at all. They'll know to take it out of their decks and put other things in, which helps that beginning deck building process and lets you have a small win even as a brand new player. Because you and I, Sam, we've been playing Magic for ages. We know how to build decks. We know about mana curves and what you know constitutes a strong or a weak card a lot of the time. But a brand new player, especially if you've never played a card game before, has absolutely no idea. Giving them just that nudge in the right direction of here's how you can improve your decks and make your decks better is is really great. I remember when I started playing, I didn't have a lot of that. And I had my deck. It was the deck, the, the deck that I owned. And whenever I would open a booster pack, I would just put the cards that I liked into that deck. And by the end, it was five colors. It was a hundred and something cards. Nothing ever worked. And me and my brother just both played that way. It was absolutely ridiculous. But we didn't really have any handholds or ideas of how to build a deck. So we just put the stuff we liked in. Eventually, we did learn that maybe we should stick to 60 cards and two or three colors. But that's a big step. It takes time to learn that. And making sure that the cards help get you there and the way that we build products help get you there is really important. One of the things that I do at Wizards is, in addition to a game designer, I'm what's called a product architect. So I do a lot of work on looking at our overall lineup of products and deciding what we should make and what audience it's for. And of course, some things are for a more enfranchised, deep audience, like say the master sets, but also a lot of things are for that newer player or in that intermediate player. When I was working on Archenemy Nicol Bolas, as an example, that's a three-on-one game where one player plays against three of their opponents. And there's four included decks in that product. And I made sure that one of them was on the simpler side so that if you're newer and you're less experienced and you're playing with your friends, you could pick up that deck and people could help run you through it, teach you the ropes. And just finding those little teaching moments is so crucial. It really makes me think about how many other things are hidden in games or purposely built into things that are supposed to be bad on purpose just so that you can learn about what's good and what's not. And and, and that's just so interesting to me. It's just like, not everything can be good. Not everything... Everything can be a specific way. It's a journey. It's a discovery. And that's how you play with a toy. That is how you enjoy a hobby, a game. This is entertainment. We want the gears to turn in our heads. We want the, the we want to tinker with things, right? Right. I mean, we can sit down from each other and say you've never played tic-tac-toe before. And I have never played tic-tac-toe before. We can sit down and I can teach you the rules and we can play and we'll have fun for a little while. And then we'll realize that we've, after a couple of games, we've discovered everything there is to know about this game. We know it inside now. And then you can move up to something like say chess which is a fantastic game don't get me wrong and we'll both sit down both learn the rules we'll play it and there's a little bit more to learn there there's all these opening moves and all this history and things to discover but at the end of the day there's only so many pieces and you get to learn how all the pieces move how all the openings work and while there's still a ton of strategy and the best players of chess are, are phenomenal you don't get the same sense of discovery and with magic you not only have the discovery of every new set we create having something new and splashy and exciting and different but also if you're coming in right now you have the discovery of how to build a deck all these old cards you've never heard about all these different formats all these different ways to play the great community and what they've come up with so it's just discovery after discovery after discovery and even though it is a much harder game to learn the discoveries are endless and really keep you transfixed. Like watching some kind of indie movie, you just want to know what happens next. Discovery is a big part of magic. And like uh, what we know about what they say about magic, play magic, see the world. Gavin, you have done quite a bit of traveling around the world. And this is a great segue to go from magic design to really your other hobby in life, which is uh, you love to travel. You love to go eat and explore and go to different places and fall off of volcanoes and (laughs) things like that. Tell us about how you got this passion to go travel and see the world. You know, not to bring it back for a second, but magic is really where this all started. Growing up, we didn't really travel a ton as a family. 
I actually grew up half the year in Seattle, half the year in Phoenix, and which kind of ruined my ability to sense weather because it's cold and warm, cold and warm, cold and warm. But um, my homeschooling allowed us to do that, kind of have that transitional dual place lifestyle because my parents hated the cold. So we would go down to Phoenix in the wintertime, come back up to Seattle in the, in the summertime because we also liked baseball and we would go watch spring training out there every, every year. And it wasn't until I started qualifying for pro tours outside of the country that we really got to go on the sojourn of travel. My first time ever outside of North America was when we all took a family trip to Pro Tour Berlin when I was uh, 16 years old. I won the qualification and it was really cool all as a family to go there together. And I played in my tournament. We all saw sights together. We got to hang out at the end of the night. The first time out of the country, I just thought this was amazing. There's a whole world outside of what I've known. Like growing up, I've seen this tiny little window of what life is like on the West Coast of the US. I want to go see everything. I want to explore everything. And slowly over time, my, my life goal became to see every country in the world because everywhere is different. And everywhere I go, there's kind of three pillars. People, I want to make friends in places. I want to meet people in places. I want to see what the people there do. There's the sights. Everywhere has truly unique places to see. Even the smallest places in the world have fun little nooks and crannies. And sometimes it's not about going to the big historical site, but just walking down a tiny neighborhood and seeing kids running around in the street playing and seeing how they play. And then third, of course, is food. I find, love eating food in different places because everywhere does their food a little bit differently, even in the US, all around the world, you can taste flavors that you didn't know existed. There's this chef I love called uh, Grant Alcatraz. He runs this restaurant called Alinea in Chicago. It's a very famous restaurant, three Michelin stars, um, but also a number of other restaurants. And he has this quote in his book that I like. It's a fantastic book, by the way. You should read his, his autobiography. He was a chef who got tongue cancer, which is crippling for him. And it still runs this three Michelin star restaurant. And it, it's amazing. Um, but he has this, this quote, which is, you can't see new colors, but you can taste new flavors. And that's how I feel. And you go around the world trying all these foods in all these different places, and you get a sense of the place kind of through what you're eating and the sauces they're using, the history that goes into the dish, and what plants did you harvest to create this. And even learning the history of how different food came to be in different places tells you a lot about that location. So wherever I go, I always like to eat and probably a little too much, but I'm always on the hunt of where to go. And often I pick where in the world I want to travel based on where I want to eat next. Wow, that's a wonderful way to choose how you're going to travel to because the world is really big. You kind of have a better understanding of where places are because you just have to look at a map. You don't, there isn't like necessarily a food map. You don't like open Google Maps and then there's like a hot dog there and there's like a taco there and there's pizza there or pasta there. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go to that place because of the food. You have to kind of get there because, you know, it's a, it's a landmass, obviously. And then you have to kind of learn about the people, like you said, learn about the history. And then the food starts to kind of poke its head out and you kind of figure out where, where the food comes from. It's so interesting that you said that, you know, the, the quote about you can only see a certain amount of colors, but then in terms of a flavor, you can always get a new flavor. I find that to be very interesting because when you try new foods, you always end up bumping into a new flavor. And it's always so surprising, this theme of discovery, not just in magic, R&D, but also just in life and travel and food and culture. There's always discovery there. And it's exposing yourself to these, these new flavors gets you thinking about different people and different stories and different histories. And that's very enlightening. It kind of, it's, it's very expansive. It kind of opens you up to something new. Going to other places in the world and seeing how they do things, seeing how they make their food, seeing the kitchen work, going to restaurants that look nothing like what you, you would see here in any fashion, going to tiny little stalls and eating the food that, that, that they've served there, where that's just the culture. It, it's amazing. One of my favorite food memories is when I was in Shanghai. And in the US, you know, we're, we're pretty spoiled. We've got things like TripAdvisor and Yelp and all kinds of things that point you in certain directions. And while most of these do exist worldwide, they don't have the catalog of all these places like we do in the US because a lot of them simply don't have a, a Yelp establishment or a TripAdvisor establishment or, you know, often those websites cater to tourists. It's not what the locals are typing in. And when I was in Shanghai, I woke up on my last day in Shanghai and I decided I'd eaten all kinds of nice restaurants there. I tried all kinds of things, but I decided today I was going to spend my entire day just walking around in no particular direction and just eating whatever looked good. And that was some of the most memorable food I've ever had because I remember I would I walked around a corner at one point and there's just a line of people. I didn't even know what they were in line for. I just stood in line and thought, well, it's got to be for food. It looks like it's for food. I'm going to stand in it. And I wait about 15 minutes and I get close up to the front and there's just an old man 
probably in his 70s or 80s, sitting on the corner with a bunch of ingredients spread out in front of him, making Vietnamese crepes. And, you know, he makes you a crepe. There's no ordering. He's just like, he makes one, hands it to you. You put some money in the in the jar and you walk off. And I got it. I ate it. And it was divine. It was amazing. It's just like some guy on the corner who probably I will never find him again. He probably picks a different corner every day. I will never see that, that guy in my life. And that combines the sights of the city. It's truly unique. It combines the people. That is a person's story. Like, what is the history behind that guy? I want to know so badly. And if I could only speak Chinese, I might have asked. And then third, it does give you that food and that flavor that you're only really going to find at that one moment in time of this guy who has perfected this. And just going around trying all the dumplings I could try and things that I didn't know what they were, but people were lining up. I wanted to put them in, in my mouth was was just amazing. And I don't know, that, that day always sticks with me as like the perfect encapsulation of what I look for when I go around. Because I mean, I love a good three Michelin star place as much as the next foodie. But it's these places that you will never experience again, that don't take reservations, that you will never find again, that no one has a Yelp site for, that are off the beaten path that, that really grab my attention more than anything else and make a memorable, memorable experience. Food stalls are such a special opportunity to experience something if you're with the locals that are of that place. And they are kind of being generous. They're giving you a piece of their heart and soul and history by serving you something that they think is worth serving. And earlier we were talking, Gavin, about what specifically makes something delicious, right? There's like the science of flavor. You know, you have all the different flavors, sweet, spicy, salty, fatty, sour, acidic, you know, whatever, sharp, crunchy, or soft or creamy. What is this thing that makes something delicious? Especially because we're talking about a journey about going and trying food and different cultures and different flavors and different combinations of things that, that, that your brain has never experienced before. But what is it that you take a bite of something and you're like, this is delicious. How does, how does that translate? Yeah, it's so hard to pinpoint it and, and every person is different. And you're right that a lot of it has to do with all these elements that go into the food. And I certainly what you taste has to do with what's made. But I can't help but wonder if some of it is about the experience and the environment as well. There's something about, I mean, if I had had that same crepe handed to me from a restaurant where I sat down in Seattle, would I have liked it as much? Well, it probably would have still been delicious, but that moment being immersed in the culture and having it is really interesting. There's this restaurant um, in China China, and I haven't been. It's called Ultraviolet. And it's a very interesting restaurant. They serve you a 16 course meal. They serve 10 people a night all in one communal sitting. And the entire restaurant and its floor to ceiling screens. And there's microphones and sound equipment all around and um, a place to pipe in smells. And every course is accompanied by audio and visual and olfactory things to heighten your experience. So for example, when you have the seafood course, you are you feel like you are on the ocean. Like they switch the TVs to be on the coast. They pipe in sounds of seagulls chirping. They you know, put a little bit of salt water scent in the air. When you have, there's a peanut course and they put you in a baseball game stadium and pipe in the crowd cheering and that kind of smell of the, of the stadium. And like I said, I haven't been to this, but I do know a couple of friends who have gone and just said, it's like nothing else because it, it, every course feels not only like you're eating the food, but you're getting this full experience around it. You know, when you um, when you talk to Jiro in Japan J from Jiro Dreams of Sushi, their whole experience there is you sit down at their sushi counter and you can't stay there, there for more than a half an hour. They feed you a piece of sushi, you eat it. They ask you what, what you thought of it and then they make you another piece of sushi. And based on what you are saying, they change what they're making for you. It's very personalized. If you go to 11 Madison Park, one of the top red restaurants in the world in New York City, it's a restaurant where they have a Dreamweaver on staff. And what the Dreamweaver does is either ahead of time via email or at the beginning of the meal, they come out and talk to you. They talk to you about you as a person, what you like, what you're into, and then they go back and craft their meal based on what you told them. And not just the courses, not just selecting the foods for you, but even designing the meal on the fly. When um, my friends Osip Lovadovich and a few other New York Magic players went there, they told them they were Magic players and they were going to Las Vegas for this big tournament in a few weeks and they brought out multiple courses in the shape of magic cards with game text written on them. And this is from one of the most fancy, elegant restaurants in the world. They care about this unique experience, this truly unusual experience. And so yes, taste is huge and you have to make your food delicious for me to want to eat it. But to bring it up from that 10 to that unassailable 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 
immersing yourself in that experience and being somewhere unique, I think that's a key part of it. That is so crazy. I cannot believe that story. I mean, we all know, we've all heard the saying that, you know, you eat with your senses. So you eat with your eyes and you smell. You have to be able to smell things. Just like even in like wine tasting, you have to be able to smell things in, in, in addition to just tasting them. And that's just so fascinating to me is like what we're dissecting here is that food is not only uh, the product of just how specifically food tastes in like deliciousness, but also where you are, what you're experiencing in that moment around you with your other senses. That's also really interesting because some of those other senses don't always have to be, you know, in that positive, that that cliche positive direction. Sometimes you're sitting in a really kind of a dingy, divey little restaurant on a little wooden stool on, a, on the corner of a loud street and things don't look super hygienic, but still things are incredibly delicious and you never forget those experiences either. You know, there's been a lot of research on memory and what makes us remember things. And I actually got interested in with this first because of magic. Why is it that I can remember how a game played out from nationals 10 years ago, but can't remember where I put my keys this morning? You know, how is that possible? And what I learned when I was doing some research on memory is memory is really, really tied to emotions. And you're more likely to remember really high or really low emotional states, which is why when you're playing magic and you have this amazing top deck or this horrible bad beat, or you lose playing for a big tournament when all that adrenaline is pumping, or even another aspect, we all memorize magic cards and in this crazy fashion. How do I know just thousands of cards in my head when I can't remember basic algebra sometimes? And it's that sense of discovery. You open up a pack, you see a card for the first time. You're like, wow, this is amazing. And I'm going to remember this. Or you're playing a deck and you have an emotional attachment to that, that deck. You see a card previewed and you are blown away by how this card works. And with food and the experience, a lot of memorable experiences are because you were in a particular emotional state. For example, maybe you were extremely hungry and you finally ate. And as you know, as anyone knows, when you were really hungry and you eat, you feel so good about it, right? You're like, it could be anything and I would love it. When you're on a date that's particularly memorable, you're like, wow, that place was amazing because I had this amazing date there and it feels magical. And the thing is, in all these cases, if you go back and you try and experience them again exactly the same way, it'll almost never live up to that memory in your head. If you go back to a place where you had an amazing date with someone that you really care about, with someone that you married or has gone on to be a significant other or whatever the case might be, recapturing that initial feeling of walking in there, not knowing what was going to happen, being a little nervous, sitting down, having some banter, ordering food that was delicious, it's almost impossible, which is why for me, I tend to favor new things because I find that things are seldom as good returning in your memory. And it's as tempting as it is, leave that memory in a crystalline box. Don't watch Thundercats again. It's not as good as you remember. Go try something new instead and make new memories instead of holding on to these old, these old ones. That's so interesting that you that you have this joy about discovering something and really focusing on the discovery of it. The journey of trying something new, experiencing something new, exposing yourself to something new is not something that a lot of people are very interested in doing. They're, people are sometimes really afraid of new things and really afraid of trying things that are new specifically because they're afraid of whether or not it's going to be good. But you've kind of decoupled that about whether or not it's going to be good, whether or not it's going to be safe, and you've emphasized the newness of it, the discovery of it, the learning of it. I mean, you can't find the amazing successes if you don't have some failures. And I have plenty on both sides. I have all kinds of travel stories that have gone awry. I have all kinds of food that have not turned out well. But on the flip side, finding that 10 out of 10, that 11 out of 10, the 15 out of 10 never happens if you don't get out of your zone a little bit and try it out. And, you know, for reference, when I was a kid, I did not like many kinds of food. I wanted to eat like pizza and pasta and like bread and muffins and the most basic generic foods. And I did not want to travel. I didn't want to leave my house. I didn't want to go on adventures out there. I wanted to stay in one place. And really in college, I just kind of changed a little bit. There's this one moment that might have defined my entire life, honestly. I was uh, 17, so I was fresh in college, and I was walking through the quad on the University of Washington. It was gorgeous. It was um, the cherry blossoms were out. It was summertime. It's, it's between classes. And I was very heads down in college, get my homework done, play magic professionally, you know, focus on what really matters, get good grades, because I wanted to come work at Wizards. Randy had given me the path, right? And I'm walking through the college campus, and I see a circle of people from my class sitting there, and I would normally never do this. I would never go and just join a circle like that. But for whatever reason at the time, I was struck, and I thought, you know what, fine, I'll, I'll go I'll go join them. And I said hi and joined, and they said, hey, we're about to all go down kayaking. Do you want to come join us? And to you, 
out there, you're probably like, well, yeah, you can just go join them. It's no big deal. But to me, you have to understand, I did zero spontaneous things. I planned my day down to the hour sometimes. And for me to, on a whim, say, yeah, I'll go kayaking with you and go out. And I had this amazing experience just kayaking around Lake Washington. I'd never met most of these people before. I only knew one or two of them. We got talking, learning about each other. We experienced this brand new thing. I never kayaked in my life together. And it was completely wild for me to do this. And I never even tried something like this. And it was that day where I realized, wow, there's so much out there to do that I just have never touched in my life. These places to see, these experiences to, to have, these people I haven't met. And by staying in one place and just keep my head down, I've never gotten to, to try any of this. And look, I'm not saying to go out and try everything. There's plenty of things that maybe even today I wouldn't try. But if you are someone who doesn't enjoy trying new things, it doesn't mean you can't go try the old things too. But every now and then, just go try something new and you might be surprised what you find. Go try out a new restaurant. Go to a new place. See a new play. You'll never know what you uncover. We're going to have more from Gavin Verhey coming up. But first, a word from our sponsors. Gavin, you have a special Patreon supporters gift for us. Could you tell us what it is? Absolutely. Well, thank you for supporting Sam because for you all, I have a cheering fanatic. Hopefully you're a fan of his show. One of the fun things that we did when we worked on Battle Bond is try to get those flavor things in there because, of course, it's taking place in an arena. You've got this crowd of people cheering. And we wanted to make sure we could encompass that with a card. So I absolutely love this. If you notice in the art, actually, the goblin is cosplaying Sylvia Brightspear, who is one of the legendary characters in the set. So you've got to not only get this fun goblin in a crowd who's really excited about what he's seeing out there, but he's also cosplaying a character, and as a cosplayer, it means a lot to me. Plus, it's a really fun card to play, a two-mana 2-2 two -two that when it attacks, it makes a spell of your choice cheaper for the turn. It can make, of course, your teammate's spell cheaper in Two-Headed Giant. Or if you're playing one-on-one, -on -one, just make the next spell you're going to cast one less to play. So I absolutely love this card. It's a nice little uncommon from a set that means a lot to me, Battle Bond. I'm excited to give it out to you all. And I'm also very curious, is Cheering Fanatic the first card art that features a cosplayer? At least in non-Silver Border territory, yeah. We've never done cosplayers anywhere else in Magic. And we actually, when we were working on Battle Bond, we had a long list of these tropes to design around. And we tried to get things like last person standing in there, like fumble in there. And one that was on my list and important to me as someone who is a cosplayer and who has a lot of cosplayer friends in the Magic community was cosplay. And I didn't think we were gonna get there actually. I tried a few different individual card designs and making a card design that is cosplay is really, really hard to make work. So I was kind of just said, hey, look, I don't have a way to make this work. Maybe the art team when they're commissioning can come up with something. Cynthia Shepard nailed it here. A fanatic cosplaying in the crowd. She got that little taste in there and it's absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad we got to represent that on a card. And it's a little understated. You don't see it at first blush, but it's, it's wearing the same helmet she wears. It's the colors, the red and white of Sylvia and uh, Corvath. It's just a little touch, a little one of those little Easter eggs we talked about earlier in the set. So is Cynthia Shepard the artist for this or? Uh, Cynthia is the art director. Art director, so, oh. So at Wizards for each set, we have an art director that commissions all the art and sends our wide variety of artists art descriptions of what to draw. And if you look at the art description for Shearing Fanatic, she talked about have a goblin that's cosplaying um, Sylvia, and that was fantastic. And then the artist, uh, Philip, knocked it out of the park. It's a fun illustration too. You get that feeling of being in a crowd and looking at a person in a stadium, or a goblin in this case. That's awesome. And I'm also a huge cube player. This is, I think, an underrated cube card, a two mana 2-2 two -two that makes your next spell cost one less. Fun to put in your commander decks. Just a, just a blast. It's like, a, it's like a pseudo ramp spell. Yeah, and it, the fun thing is, once again, it can ramp any card you name, including other players. So if, say you're playing commander and someone has an instant they want to play, maybe you can help them out a little bit. Be like, hey, yeah, I'll name your instant. Don't attack me next turn or something like that. <laughs> Super cool. Gavin has signed copies of Cheering Fanatic for Patreon supporters. Gavin's love for cosplay and multiplayer magic shines brightly in this elegantly designed card. You can get one by supporting the show at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Supplies are limited, and I'll be sending out the last of our Patreon rewards in the next couple of weeks. A big thanks to all my Patreon supporters past, present, and future, who always wins in a multiplayer game of Commander. Again, that's patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thanks for your support. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. In my experiences ordering things online, I always hope everything goes well. Like, will I get my package quickly? Will my order be correct? With so many business interactions being digitized and becoming less personal, 
we care more about receiving great customer service. And you're probably wondering, how do I find an online store that embodies all the qualities that we're looking for these days? I decided to read what people were saying online about Card Kingdom. Lost Jedi 2003 says, Card Kingdom, hey, I just got my orders. Love, love the speed and efficiency from you guys. Thank you very much. Twitter user Gold Convoy got a robot soldier token hand-drawn and included in their order. Huge thank you to Card Kingdom for the custom token. I asked for a mechanical robot soldier token, and it's beyond what I could have imagined. Kitoshi got a fully colored rainbow chameleon token drawn. Brock Bro says, Thank you, Card Kingdom. Ordered Friday, received Monday. Fast shipping is no lie. Love the pull tab tape job on the case. 39 cards. Rich Baranek says, At Command Cast, you were right. Card Kingdom ships fast. Wasn't expecting to have this for another week or two. Also, no one mentioned the awesome care they take in packaging the cards. Even professional football player Cassius Marsh gets his hard-to-find foils from Card Kingdom. It seems the people have spoken. From fast shipping logistics to great customer service, card selection, and also the care their fulfillment takes when packaging each order, Card Kingdom goes above and beyond. I even purchase all of my Patreon supporters' gifts from Card Kingdom. So if you're looking to purchase Magic the Gathering singles and sealed products online, Card Kingdom has been trusted by Magic players around the world. You can also show support for Kitchen Table Magic when you use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com KTM. Again, that's cardkingdom.com KTM. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Paragon City Games. I've been talking about Paragon City Games for some time now, and recently I've been invited to film three vlogs at their game store for their Heroes League Invitational series. It's a local tournament where the winners compete at a year-end Invitational. The player community there is wonderful, competitive, and fun. They have friendly staff that greet every single person that walks through the door. The store itself is huge, open, clean, bright, airy. There's beverages, snacks, clean restrooms, a fully loaded feature match area, and a high-tech streaming setup. The entire store is filled with huge open tables, enough to fit over 100 players. I played at an FM there once, and there were four different formats going at the same time. They also have a huge selection of board games, magic singles, supplies, tokens, handcrafted wooden deck boxes, and artisanal diehard metal dice. If you want to see the vlogs I made for Paragon City Games, just go to facebook.com slash paragoncitygames and click on videos. I made three vlogs, one for each of their standard, modern, and legacy events. Paragon City Games has a commitment to legacy, and they're streaming legacy daily at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. If you're ever in Draper, Utah, go check them out. And if you love legacy, watch their Twitch stream, again, at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. They're a wonderful group of people, and I'm so grateful to have them as friends. Okay, everyone, and we are back. Gavin, I have some rapid-fire questions for you. Are you ready? Oh, I am so ready, Sam. Bring it on. Gavin, rapid-fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what's your favorite color and why? Well, it's maybe a, a, a boring or trite answer among people who have played uh, competitively, but I love blue. Not just because I love it at the high-end professional level, drawing cards in these crafty long control games, but even when I started playing, blue was one of the first decks I built. Once I got out of my five-color everything deck, I built a blue-white flyers deck and then a blue-green madness deck, and both of those really held special place in my heart. I actually still have my blue-green madness deck together from all those years ago because it means so much to me. And I love playing aggressive blue decks, get some creatures down, do a bit of tempo. I love playing controlling blue decks. It just fits the play style, that kind of crafty style. And um, whenever I try building a new deck, blue is often something that I will consider. If I'm looking at a brand new format, I want to try a counterspell deck or a quick tempo deck or something like that. With that said, I'll play any of the colors. I'll happily play any of them. They all have things I love about them. I've grown to appreciate each and every one of them. And playing competitively, you get used to playing everything under the, under the sun and working at Wizards doubly so because we have to be willing to try every single thing out. But with that said, like a nice mono blue or blue-white control deck, Oh, perfect. That's, that is food I will eat right there. So if you would pair blue with another color, then you would pair it with white? White or black, traditionally, yeah. Or blue, white, black. When it comes to guilds, of course, guilds of Ravnica are the hot new thing right now. Demir is my guild, so blue, black control, pretty good. And actually, nice and standard right now, too. Very, very cool. 
Gavin, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? And I know that's kind of a funny question asking you because you probably can change some things in Magic, but you know, in general. So it's really interesting because I work at Wizards, right? So I have the ability to change most things about Magic. So what I would change is something that most people don't even think about and actually has very little to do with magic design. And what a lot of people don't know about magic is that it takes a very long time to make a magic set. We start making a set about 24 months before it actually comes out, two years, and even in some cases earlier than that. Unstable, by the way, took six years from beginning to end. Really long time. And the thing, though, is about for the last year, last nine months to a year, the set is locked down. It's done. It's being printed. It's going to be shipped. And we can't do anything in that time. And what I wish, if I could just snap my fingers and make anything about all of Magic Change, was that there was a way to compress that lead time. If I could finish a set and have it out to you the next day, I absolutely would. Because one, I love it so much and it's so hard to keep all these secrets bottled up for years and years sometimes. But two, it would allow us to react really quickly to things. Like imagine we saw what the metagame was for Guilds of Ravnica right now and then said, oh, hey, great. We'll go slide something into Ravnica Allegiance that's perfect. And while we do a lot of playtesting and getting things just right, reacting on a two months time scale is not really possible right now. So we, we, we were actually trying. One of the big things I've been working on at Wizards is getting that time lower and lower and lower. And we've seen that with things like the Challenger decks that came out earlier this year, where they are meta game decks that we made just a few months before, actually. We made them about five months before they released. But even then, five months from finishing something to releasing it is a pretty long time to wait, especially when you compare it to a lot of digital games, which you can just push a button and have it up within a couple of weeks. It's not quite that simple, I recognize. But it's kind of a weird answer, but that is what I would choose. Oh, I love that answer. I've, that, we've never talked about that on the show before. That's a great, that's a great thought, to shorten that lead time. I mean, imagine all the really cool things we could do if I could finish a set today and ship it out tomorrow. There's all, like, imagine I ran a, uh, I don't know, a Twitter poll. I would probably never do this. I would never get permission. But imagine I ran a Twitter poll. It was like, hey, let's design a card on the fly. We put it in a set and then we print it tomorrow. Like, that would be really cool, right? But not quite going to happen. Because uh, you know Twitter would probably vote for that black-green flying vigilance creature. Hey, man, 4-4 flying vigilance black-green card. It's the future. That's the future. You ask Mark Rosewater today. That's what he'll tell you. <laughs> Okay, Gavin, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? So once again, my answer is a little non-traditional. I know you're expecting like a card or a product or something like that, but my answer is actually very different. I would give everybody a plane ticket and a hotel to a big Magic tournament near them, like say a, a current Grand Prix or an upcoming Magic Fest or something like that. And the reason why is because Magic is all about community to me. It really is about meeting people, going out and seeing what's, what's there. And there's a lot of people who frankly will never have the opportunity to go to these kind of events. But also, there's a lot of people who are a little scared away by the competitive nature of it or how big it is and wouldn't walk in. But it turns out there's just a lot of fun stuff to do that has nothing to do with the main tournament at all. If you go to a local Grand Prix or now Magic Fest is the uh, changeover name, there's just people playing Commander around a table. There are casual drafts firing of Unstable over in the corner. And it's kind of just a big festival of magic, which is, I guess, where the name Magic Fest comes from. That fun nature is something that the community builds upon and by getting into it, you become invested in for life. And seeing that, that that's there and understanding that is huge. So whether it's a big tournament, I guess, or even just going to someone's uh, a big store in the country and playing magic and meeting people in that community, that's what I would wish for everyone is go out, see places, once again, travel the world, see somewhere unique. Maybe I would send you to some really unique location. Uh, send you to somewhere in Southeast Asia or something like that, and then go meet magic players there. It is truly an amazing experience. Plus, you get to eat the food there too. So it's just, it brings it all around for me. You know, it's, it's, it's great. So there you go on me, all expenses paid trip to a Southeast Asia for the Grand Prix of your choice. No problem. I'm sure we can afford that. <laughs> all the listeners, right? There's a Patreon donation goal where if we hit enough, we can do that for everybody. Yeah, Gavin, Gavin will slap out his own credit card for that one. Yeah. Next, rapid fire question number four. Gavin, what do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? And of course, this is a very special question that I ask to all of my guests, but for you, it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got a pretty good eye of what's in the future, although even I am not sure about how everything is going to be over the next six, seven years. But the thing that you will see that is different than ever before is us testing things out and learning from them and listening to your feedback to create new things. For a very long time, we just, just were kind of making sets on our own, releasing them, seeing 
seeing how they did, releasing more sets, etc. But now with the advent of social media, things like this very podcast, people sharing their opinions with us all the time. With our ability to kind of put out small runs of products and try them out, get reactions and tweak them to make them better and then release them, there's a lot of opportunities for this kind of thing. Uh, a great example is back with Dominaria. We released a, in a very small test run these theme boosters, which you buy them. They're 35 cards of a single color. You buy a white, blue, black, red, or green one. You get 35 cards of that color and they kind of expand your collection and something new and different. And hey, if you're just a blue player, you can buy the blue one and get a bunch of blue cards. And they were so, so successful and our initial data was so good on them from that tiny limited run that we then rolled them out full scale with Guilds of Ravnica. And now you can go to your local game store and pick up a copy of them. And so you'll see a lot of these very targeted, very unique tests. And frankly, knowing what's coming down the pipeline, we're going to try some things out, the likes of which you have never seen before. In Magic's 25-year history, there are some things that we are doing which even I think are kind of wild and outrageous in a good way. So even within the next year of Magic, we're releasing a couple of these really wild things. So I guess stay tuned. And your reactions to how you take these things will determine if we do them again or not. Like the mainline sets, we're just going to keep doing those. We're going to release a set every quarter that's like a Guilds of Ravnica, like a Ravnica Allegiance. Those aren't vanishing. But when it comes to some of these new experimental things we're doing that we're releasing on Moss, it is literally up to you and how you receive them and how you talk about them. And if you buy them or not, that we'll decide if we keep doing them or not. And I know we're going to have some failures along the way. And please tell me when those happen. I know we're going to have some successes along the way. Please tell me when those happen. They're both very important. Very, very cool. Very, very exciting. And I really appreciate that. And last, Gavin, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? There's nothing I can ask or request of you more after listening to this episode than going out and doing something different. Whether it's traveling to a new place, trying a kind of food you don't normally try, playing a deck style you don't normally play, meeting people you wouldn't normally meet. Go out and expand your horizons, whether it's in magic or in life, or perhaps you're like me and you can combine the two and make it about magic and life and food all together. Go out and try something different. If you have any questions about any of this or any advice about where to go, food to eat, you're welcome to hit me up on Twitter at Gavin Verhey. Pretty easy to find. If you're in Seattle, I've got a food website called GavinEats.com. You can go there and get all my food recommendations. And I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this and that you're now inspired to go out and be part of the magic community, be part of the world community community and see something new and exciting. I love it. I love it. Gavin, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today to talk about magic and your design perspective, as well as uh, travel and food and just kind of like enjoying the spice of life that is really getting <laughs> out there. You know, I do think that our modern lives, we like to sit at our desk and do our thing and go to our commute and be cuddled up on the couch at home and everything's very safe. And also with technology, everything comes to us these days. In my conversation with you, I've really opened up this concept of going out there and going to different places and going and experiencing different places. And uh, I read your story about falling off of a volcano. And I thought that was very interesting and very funny. It's like you being able to experience that. But but to me, it really opened up something for you that falling off a volcano and getting completely muddy and getting completely lost wasn't the worst thing that could have happened to you. And <laughs> if anything, it made you a better person. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, there's a lot of worlds where I died there. But in this world, I didn't. And I've got a great story from it. So I'm sure you'll include it in the show notes if you want to go check it out. Whenever you leave your house, it's just like in Lord of the Rings. If you go outside the Shire, you're going to hit some bumps. There's going to be some enemies you're going to face. You're going to take some lumps when you travel. But you're also not going to get to get those amazing highs. You're not going to go see the forests of Rivendell. You're not going to be able to meet some amazing friends along the way. And even if things have even burned in the past or you try something out and it doesn't work for you, it's all an opportunity to learn. Much like with us trying these new things out for magic, releasing them and learning. And in life, we have an opportunity to learn every single day. So learn from today. Thank you again for having me on, Sam. It was a pleasure. It's pretty seldom I get to sit down and talk about not just magic, but my life and all my other hobbies. And if you're out there listening, hey, I just talked about discovering new things and meeting new people. You're welcome to reach out to me and I'd be happy to chat with you as well about anything and everything. I really appreciate Gavin taking the time from his busy day to share stories with the community. You can go say hi to Gavin on Twitter at Gavin Verhey. That's at G-A-V-I-N-V-E-R-H-E-Y. I've got links to Gavin's food blog and also his blog article about the time he fell off a volcano in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. You can follow Kitchen Table Magic on Twitter at KTM Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I'm on Twitter at Sam O'Tango. 
Kitchen Table Magic is now on Spotify in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. It's that time of our show to thank our Patreon supporters, Brian, Marcus, James L., Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Neil, Aaron C., Corey, Chad, Logan S., Nick, Eternal, Dirtles, Matthias, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Carl, David, Matthew, Chris, and Jonathan. I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future. They're the ones that really make this show tick. Thank you so much for all of your generous support. I want to take a moment to thank everyone who's listened to, shared, and supported Kitchen Table Magic throughout the years. I want to thank our sponsors, who have been so kind to me in the show, Brian of Paragon City Games and Tara of Card Kingdom. I've always been so grateful for the unwavering support from both of these companies. They embody what all retailers in the Magic community should be. I want to thank the guests of Season 4, Aaron Forsyth, Megan and Maria of Good Luck High Five, Ruben Bressler, Ashlyn Rose, Matt Sperling, Seth Manfield, Andrew Magrini, Ian Dixon, David Williams, and Gavin Verhey. I also want to thank all of my wonderful guests from all of our past seasons who generously shared about their lives on this show. There have been so many wonderful stories shared in my past episodes, so you haven't listened to them. They're all archived on kitchentablemagic.org and hipstersofthecoast.com. I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters. Your generous support helped pay for the audio equipment, editing software, web hosting, and postage for all the signed cards I sent out. I want to thank the Magic community at large for your kindness and friendship. Thank you for having me, and thank you for listening to the stories I produced. I want to thank Wizards of the Coast for helping me set up interviews with all of the WotC staff over the years. As for myself, I'll be working on a new project and traveling the world. I'll be continuing to tell stories around the world with my camera, this time with photos and videos. You can stay in touch with me on Twitter, at Samotango, where I will announce my new project soon. If there's one thing I've learned after interviewing four seasons worth of the Magic community, it's that this game is nothing without its people. The Magic community is so vast and so diverse that you could spend the rest of your life talking about it and still not know everything there is to know about Magic. I truly hope that this show has inspired you to try to play new formats, to meet more people, or to start your own podcast. Whatever it may be, I hope you know that you matter. And after listening to stories of everyone I interviewed, you see how much people can truly inspire each other. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and thank you for listening to Kitchen Table Magic.